Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, as we continue our journey through the book of Luke, we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 28 in Luke chapter 11 today. And let me start off by just reminding us, and we've, we've talked about this as we've been walking through Luke, we live in a world that looks at Jesus often as just simply a good guy, or maybe a little bit more than that, maybe he's really good teacher, maybe he's a, a, a really good historic leader, a model citizen, somebody that you look up to, somebody that you appreciate, somebody that you try to model your life after, but it seems like that's just about it. And unfortunately, the church often has not done a good job of describing Jesus as much more than that. Often the church, we water down the gospel to try to present a Jesus that's more palatable to our world so that the crowd will be larger. In fact, Kyle Eidelman, one of the teaching pastors at Southeast Christian Church here in Louisville, Mega Church, he recently wrote a book called Not a Fan. Maybe you've read it before. But at the very beginning of that book, I, I, I would really appreciate it because he starts the book off with an apology. And he apologizes because for many years, he said that I've tried to make Jesus look really attractive, attractive as possible, in hopes that people would come to find eternal life in him. But he admittedly says, in the process of doing that, he had cheapened the gospel. And he says, if you look at the original text, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the earliest accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they don't leave any kind of room for apathy. They, they paint a picture of Jesus that could care less about how big the crowd was. In fact, when the crowd got larger, sometimes he would weed them out by saying crazy things. He cared very much more about the commitment of the crowd than the size of the crowd. And today's passage very much affirms that truth. Jesus does not want fans. He wants fully devoted followers. And so, just as a reminder, the context of this passage, Luke, at the beginning of chapter 11, was, Jesus was asked by his disciples, teach us to pray, and so Jesus responds with the Lord's Prayer. He teaches them the, what we call today the Lord's Prayer, which is a template for prayer, a model prayer. And in that model prayer, we learned very clearly that prayer is not about us asking for God to make us comfortable or to give us stuff that we want. It wasn't about us, God, help us stay safe, put this hedge of protection around us. That was not the model prayer, right? The model prayer was all about God's glory and our dependence. That God, bring your kingdom, change my heart, give, give us what we desperately need, both physically and spiritually. Forgive us our sins, keep us from falling into temptation. And then he follows the model prayer with a parable that teaches us that we need to pray with confidence and persistence because we have a Father who loves us that we're praying to, that's adopted us into His family. And so Luke moves from that to today's passage where he's sharing a very interesting interaction between Jesus and this group of people that has just witnessed Him perform a miracle. He casts out this demon of, in this man, and this demon is making this man mute, can't talk. And so let me pray, and then we'll, we'll walk through this passage together. Father, once again, I pray that your Spirit would fill us, that 
we would, that the eyes of our heart would be open to see your majesty and your glory in this passage and that we would be changed because of it. I pray that we would be sold out for you, that we would be all in for you. Move us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so picking up in verse 14, chapter 11 of Luke. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Okay, so first of all, he's not saying that the demon was mute. He was saying that the demon was causing this man to be mute. I mean, imagine not being able to talk, being able to understand everything that people are saying around you, but not being able to communicate with them. And back then, it, I, I, it was rare for people to know how to read or how to write. And so you can imagine how difficult this must have been for this man for, for years, not to be able to communicate with people. And he probably felt very alone, probably trapped in his own body. Everybody knew that he was mute. He was well known. The, the whole community marveled when he began to speak. But their marveling did not lead to them praising Jesus. You notice that? Look at verse 15. At least not all of them praised Jesus. It says, verse 15, but some of them said, he casts out demon by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And so in Jewish culture, Beelzebul was just another name for Satan, the prince of demons. More than likely, this is the Pharisees, the, the, the Sadducees, the religious leaders that are really slandering Jesus in this moment. They, they're saying, look, the only reason he's able to cast out demons is because he's in cahoots with Satan. And other people, though, here you notice in the story, are, are kind of still on the fence. They're looking for an even greater miracle because the one that he just did wasn't spectacular enough for them. But what we're going to see here in a minute is that Jesus is not pleased, of course, with the people that are slandering him, but he's also not pleased with the people that are on the fence. Verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts, which is again Luke reminding us that Jesus is more than just a mere mortal, he's not just a good teacher, a role model, he, he knows their thoughts, he knows their mind. And he says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, why on earth would Satan cast out his own demons? Now, personally, I could, I could see that, I mean, Satan is a schemer, okay? He, he deceives. So I could see Satan possessing someone and casting out one of his own demons to, to deceive other people. But you think about Jesus' life from day one in his ministry, he's been assaulting demons left and right. Makes no sense that he would be on Satan's side. And so Jesus makes the point that, okay, Satan has this kingdom here on earth. Why in the world would he be casting out his own demons? 
kingdom like that cannot stand. And, and then he points to the fact that the Pharisees, the, these religious leaders, had sons that were also casting out demons. And so he points out that, okay, are they casting out demons also by the power of, of Satan? I mean, why are you not accusing them of the same thing? They're going to be your judge. Then he says in verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, remember, this is Jesus' message. The kingdom of God is at hand. He, he taught his disciples in the last or the first part of the, the chapter, when you pray, pray, your kingdom come, God. And so the kingdom of God breaking, uh, breaking into Satan's kingdom, that's what's happening here in this passage. It's a, it's a physical manifestation of the kingdom of God breaking through. And that language, the finger of God, that's the same language that they used back in the Old Testament. It's actually the magicians uh, back in the Exodus. The Egyptian magicians, they, uh, they looked at all the plagues that were happening, the ten plagues, and eventually they couldn't reproduce those plagues, and they said, this is the finger of God. And so Jesus is essentially saying that I cast out demons by the very power of God. He equates himself with God here. And he drives home his point with an illustration. Look at verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so Jesus is comparing Satan to this strong man who's fully armed, guarding his home, but he says, look, I am the one who is stronger, and I have come to overcome Satan. I'm not partnering with him, I'm overcoming him. And then he says this, this is, this is huge. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. There is no middle ground. And I, I wonder if while he said that, he just looked straight in the eye of those people that were kind of on the fence, that were looking for another sign for him to perform. Jesus does not beat around the bush here, does he? You can't stay on the fence. You need to either decide that you are with him or you are against him. You cannot stay neutral when it comes to Jesus. He does not allow for that. Uh, William Barclay says it well. He says, either what Jesus said about himself is false, in which case he is guilty of such blasphemy as no man ever dared to utter, or what he said about himself is true, in which case he is what he claimed to be and he can be described in no other terms than the Son of God. Jesus leaves us with the definite choice. We much, must either accept Him fully or reject Him absolutely. That is precisely why every man has to decide for or against Jesus Christ. Luke in his whole gospel, especially in this passage, he wants to leave no room for apathy. Jesus. Jesus follows these strong words then, with a very grim story that illustrates what happens when we try to stay neutral. Look at verse 24. This is what happens when we try to change on our own apart from, apart from Christ. And so he says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finds, finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. 
And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put into order. Then it goes and he brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Okay, kind of a strange story in the midst of this. What's going on here? Well, most of us have probably not experienced a a demon possession or a, a, a demon being exercised out of us. But I guarantee you, all of us have tried to work on our inner self at some point. I mean, there's a million resources out there that, that are self-help kind of books and websites. But Jesus warns us here, though, that any positive change that we experience in our inner being that's apart from the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Spirit working inside of us actually leaves us in a very dangerous place. Okay, so when we seek to change our, ourselves apart from Christ, yeah, we might, we might be a little bit more comfortable. We might feel a little bit better about ourselves for a season. But the best, at best, what you're doing is you're turning more into like a Pharisee. That they were clean on the outside, but on the inside they were dead. And because you've kind of fixed yourself, you don't think you need God, and so your last state is worse than your first. And so real practically, if you have ever gone through, if you're going through a a 12-step program because of an addiction, or if you know somebody that is, I don't want to discourage those programs. They've helped out many, many people, but... If you're going through one of those programs and your higher power is anything other than Jesus Christ, I'm deeply concerned for your soul. You need to listen to Jesus' warning here. You see, true and lasting change is accomplished only when the Spirit of God changes us. When the Spirit of God opens the eyes of our heart to see the glory of Christ in in our need for, for salvation. In fact, Theologians call the initial change in us regeneration. It's a fancy theological term that when God, it, when God transforms our hearts and it leads us to, to turn from our sins and, and trust fully in Christ, depend fully on Him for salvation. Jesus describes that experience as being like, it's like being born again. And He makes it clear that That conversion experience, it's necessary for salvation, but it's also necessary for lasting change in our lives. Because in that moment, when you're converted, what happens? Yes, your your sins are forgiven, all of them wiped clean away, and the Spirit of God then fills you so that you're empowered to fight those sinful desires. And, And not only that, You're adopted into God's family, which means that you're not alone. You've got a church family that will love you through the struggles in life and the battles that you're you're in. We talked about earlier in cross-training today that that, uh, prayer is, uh, it's not a domestic intercom. um, John Piper points this out in one of his books. Prayer is not a domestic intercom that we're talking to God like we chat with our our friends or our parents. Prayer is like a a wartime walkie-talkie. Okay, we've got a spiritual battle that's going on, and so we desperately need to have communication with our general, with our father. And so it's important that we're connected to our church family. It's important that we're connected through to God. See, when we're apathetic towards Jesus, when we don't have a wartime 
mentality and we try to fix ourselves on our own with our own powers or with some other power that's out there, uh, we, we put ourselves in a dangerous situation. That's what Jesus is trying to warn us of here. He goes on, verse 27, and he says, And he said these things, and a, and a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And so this short interaction at the end of our passage today really gives you the heart of the passage, the whole passage. See, this woman who pipes up and she says something encouraging to Jesus. I mean, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that, at which you nursed. In, in other words, she's saying, look, your mother should be really proud of you, Jesus. I mean, it's a high compliment. And you would think that Jesus would respond with like a humble thank you. But he doesn't. He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And I think Jesus would agree that his, his mother Mary was blessed, but not because she gave birth to him, but because she heard the word and kept the word, that she became a, a, a fully devoted follower of Christ. That's why she was blessed. The woman in the crowd was more like a fan, right? She, she praised Jesus like a fan would do, complimented him, but Jesus wants more than that from her. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He's not impressed with her compliment. He wants full commitment. And again, in our, in our culture, because the church has so often watered down the expectations of Jesus, it's very possible for us to think that we're followers of Christ when in reality we're just fans. That's why Kyle Eidelman wrote that book, Not a, not a Fan. And in that book, he has a list of very reflective questions that I think are really helpful for us to diagnose our hearts. I'm going to give you four of the questions he asks. Number one, have you made a decision for Jesus or have you committed to Jesus? Have you just made a decision for Jesus or have you made a commitment to Jesus? He points out that it's very possible for you to to make a decision to believe in Jesus without actually committing to follow Him. And biblically, this is not saving faith. This is not how the Bible describes faith that saves you. Faith in the Bible is more than just accepting something as fact in your mind or being able to say the right things. You see, a fan of Jesus is willing to repeat a prayer or raise their hand or walk forward at the end of a sermon. But Jesus is looking for more than that. He's looking for more than just words of belief. He's looking for, for actions that back those words up. A fan is someone who decides to believe in Jesus but never commits to follow him. It's kind of like a groom who on his wedding day makes vows to his wife and promises, but then on their honeymoon he becomes unfaithful. Did those words really mean anything? Did those vows mean anything? No, because he didn't back them up with faithful commitment. And unfortunately, the church, especially in America, has too often presented a Jesus that gives you everything but demands nothing. And that's simply not the Jesus that we see here in this passage or that we see in the Bible. 
He wants more than a verbal decision. He wants total dedication. Second question to diagnose your heart. Do you just know about Jesus or do you really know him? Uh, my son Eli knows a whole lot about Star Wars. Okay? He, could, he could list off all sorts of trivia to you, but he doesn't, he doesn't know the characters. He's never dialogued with Yoda. He's never eaten a meal with Solo. He doesn't have a relationship with any of them. You think about that. That's the Pharisees, right? I mean, they knew about God. They, they could smoke any of us in Bible trivia. But Jesus said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And today, you know, I think I'm preaching to myself, maybe more than anybody in this room, but there, uh, there, there's many people today who will invest in getting to know about God, and they study all, all sorts of theological books, and the, they even study the Bible. But they've never surrendered their heart to God. You see, it's good to know the Bible. We've we, we got to know the Bible. We've got to know the facts about Jesus, but Jesus is not impressed with how much you know about him. He desires a relationship with him. And we talked about this again in cross-training this morning. That a healthy relationship always starts with what? Communication, right? Jesus, God wants us to, to pour out our heart to him in prayer, and he wants us to sit before him and listen to him as he speaks to us through his, his word. He wants us to daily set aside time where we're fully devoted to him, that there's no distractions and, and we're, we're just we're having a conversation with him. We're communicating with him. Uh, I, I know when, when often when parents are wrestling with whether or not they should baptize their child, like how do I know that my child is really saved, especially if, they, if they've been raised up in church? Because uh, they'll learn the answers to the questions. They know how to recite. Uh, they'll answer questions about the gospel early on in life. I mean, I've heard five-year-olds that can explain the gospel better than 50-year-olds sometimes. But how do I really know that they're, that they're saved? Well, a question that I'll often ask the parents is, like, do you, do you ever catch your child, like, reading their Bible or praying on their own when nobody else is watching them? Do they have, have they made it a relationship where they've got a personal relationship with God apart from what you're telling them or, or, or trying to impress you? I think that's a good question to ask ourselves. Do we ever, do our kids ever catch us reading our Bibles or praying when nobody else is watching? Do you know about Jesus or do you know him? Third question to ask yourself as you're diagnosing your heart. Is Jesus one of many or his, is he your one and only? Is he one of many or is he your one and only? Back in Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, look, if you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to be homeless. You need to be willing to, to leave your family and your, your, your friends. He's pretty hardcore in ba back in chapter 10. And, and later on, we're going to see in chapter 14, he goes on. He gets even more bold. He says, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, he, he cannot be my disciple. 
He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus does not beat around the bush. And what is he saying there? Jesus is not saying that, look, you literally need to hate everyone to be his disciple because that would go against loving your neighbor and other things that he teaches. But what he's saying is, look, look, if you 